if you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie Show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. The following is an excerpt from a panel on the cultural significance and legacy of soul food and whether it can or should be healthy. I participated in the panel along with Cassandra Campbell, Iunika Rogers-Sip, with C2 Jones moderating. The panel had been part of the 2015 Black and Design Conference held at Harvard Graduate School of Design in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Following the panel, the conference attendees enjoyed a lunch that Bryant Terry and Dee Dee Emmons curated. Frederick Douglass Opie is a professor of history and foodways at Babson College, right here in the Boston area. And Fred Opie is a real deal culinary historian. He's a person through his blog has been able to take our food traditions and place them in this contemporary context and give us this understanding of ourselves uh, through our many traditions. His most recent book uh, is Zora Neale Hurston on Florida Food Recipes, Remedies, and Simple Pleasures. Uh, join me in welcoming Fred Opie. You know, in showing the images of this big meal that I helped uh, produce, create last year, Fred's book on Zora Neale Hurston showed me even that, you know, first of all, it was my project, but it wasn't my idea. I stole this idea from, from countless generations that have been putting on meals in the past. But his book is, has all these images of these large-scale meals. You know, folks cooking hundreds of chickens at once, and uh, and, and 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 hogs even. You know, it's all part of this tradition. But the uh, and so, what are these changes in our culinary tradition, or what what is you you touched on this a little bit? What has kind of exasperated those changes in our or this break in our culinary traditions, or from our culinary? Well, I'd say there, there are a couple of things. Um, I, I'm teaching a course right now on uh, African history and food waste at Babson. And one of the questions, my students are actually taking an exam and, uh, and preparing for that exam, one of the questions that I ask them to look at is, what changes our food traditions? And there's typically three things that influence our, our food traditions and, and how we eat. And one is migration. Uh, sometimes that migration is... Uh, on your own initiative, but in the case of many of us, uh, it's forced. And when I say uh, forced, I'm not necessarily talking about going back to the period of slavery. We, we don't have to go back that far to Jim Crow. Uh, those that come from Latin America and the Caribbean don't have to go back that far to political uh, persecution and prosecution, which caused people to migrate. There's also conversion, uh, that when you convert to a new religion, uh, that will often change uh, your food traditions. There's marriage. When you marry somebody, you typically will take on a new food tradition. 
And I think probably the last one I think is real important to consider is uh, economic dislocation. When your finances change, one of the first things that will change is how you eat and how you feed the people who are dependents to you. So I, I think that's an important part of that. I mean, I, I guess I would comment on that by saying that, uh, you know, in addition to that, that there is, in the sense of people farming, and what we've seen in the sense of revitalizing it in the South is, you know, that migration piece was part of a disconnection. You know, it created a, a disconnection to, to uh, this, you know, a break in the pass on of the legacy, the actual, uh, the uh, intellectual capital uh, that we all have, the social capital that's in community that actually makes all of this relevant. And so, um, so much of what we're really trying to do is to bring people back to one, the place, to have them connect to the land in a very deep uh, and emotional way. Um, but also to build those economies around, because you talked about a thriving, you know, I, I thought about a thriving, you know, ecosystem a space where uh, everybody has meaning uh, and the, the food is, is vibrant as a reflection of that. That's what Goody Mara was talking about. You know, if you know them, know that song, they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, the fact that, they, that it's old-fashioned and free and as good as it can be, you know. Um, so people, you always ate. <laughs> you didn't have to worry about that. So I think it's, it's uh, all of what you were saying, Fred, but also this, this sense of beloved community that you mentioned earlier, um, where, uh, you know, God forbid today in a community where you don't know anybody, uh, if you're hungry, you might not eat. Mm -hmm. um, most of the places that I work in in the South, we've held on to those traditions and everybody eats. If one person is eating, everybody's eating. Mm -hmm. You know, the family's eating and everybody's eating. So it's just little things like that that I think that are all wrapped into what, uh, uh, you know, family values and community and how um, we relate to food that way. Um, Fred mentioned the word Twinkies. And <laughs> I think that describes it all. I think that the food industry has sort of manipulated our taste buds. Uh, I was at a conference with Mel King, um, and he said, we are at war with Tony the Tiger. Um, and so that's sort of the marketing approach that we've taken as a company. Um, a graffiti artist painted our truck. Um, you know, it's making ourselves accessible, changing what the image of healthy food is so that the next generation wants to eat our food and not McDonald's. You know, I would add to that, you know, more of us need to be farming, right? Um, part of, like, you know, getting food into your community um, that reflects you is that, you know, you grow it. <laughs> um, and so uh, if we had more, more people working the land, we had more businesses um, through all parts of the value chain. I'm going to talk about that a little later in terms of creating value chains, a whole supply chain. Um, th those pieces need to be filled. Um, that's, that's broken, that system, that part of it is broken. And so, um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of work to do to actually be able to create the type of infrastructure that makes um, this type of experience real on a day-to-day. -day. I have a design question here. You know, how do urban streetscapes and rural landscapes uh, affect our local food systems? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, an interview I did with my father. 
and he talked about growing up between the Great Depression and then moving into uh, World War II and the importance that Victory Gardens played. Uh, people often forget that one of the parts of the war that people played on the home front and supporting troops is making sure that they had uh, most of the food was going to feed the troops. And therefore, how do, we, how do we maintain and sustain the food system at home? That was Victory Gardens. So that the government at the federal level made sure that land as well as uh, tools and seed were available for people to produce their own food. So um, I'm from Westchester County, the Hudson Valley, and, and my father tells the story of his father going down the street from the house where the Victory Gardens were, were there and would work those gardens and would eat from those gardens. So I, I think that's a real important part. Uh, consider where you work now and why not uh, advocate for space to have a garden on your job? Some of us don't have the luxury where we live in an urban space to have a garden. And, you know, depending where you are, your deer population, because we've encroached upon the land of deer so much, rabbit and everything, raccoons, everything else, you may not even be able to have a garden in your suburban area. But why not advocate for a garden on your, on your job uh, that is either fenced in or, you know, Will Allen at, at Growing Power has done a great job of showing us how you can take an urban space and transform it into a, uh, a, you know, a food garden, a subsistence garden. So, The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. My book, Start With Your Gift. We're making it available during the holiday season for $10. How to send your kid to school debt-free. That's grad school or undergrad. So that's the hard copy of the book, Start With Your Gift. Two ways you can order it. You can get it on Amazon.com. The book is available as an audible book and as a digital copy, but the hard copy is available for $10. You can also get it on my website at fredopiespeaks.com. Look for a link to the store and order it there. If you order it there, I'll make sure I sign a copy of it before I send it out to you. It's a great gift. It'll make a difference in somebody's life. You're a parent. Here's what you do. Buy the book, put 10, 20, $50, whatever you want at the back of the book. Give it to the kid. And the next time the kid comes to you and says, hey, mom, dad, I need some money. Just look at him and say, did you read the book? But I need some money. Just say, read the book. And leave it at that. See what happens. It'll make a difference because your kid will now have a game plan for getting the right education, know how to get an internship, negotiating a job. It'll show them how to budget. Every stupid mistake I've made is in there so they don't have to make it. It's a great investment. And for $10, it's a steal. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. The average acre cost for uh, land in the South, uh, in Alabama, for example, is around about $2,000 an acre. Um, when I talk to my colleagues who are working in, you know, L.A. or uh, Detroit, no, Detroit, Detroit's different. <laughs> um, but other urban areas, popular areas, um, you know, to get an acre of land at that price is, is unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so it's obviously affordability is an issue, uh, particularly around, you know, business development. Um, but I agree, you know, rural, it can be wherever you want to grow. I mean, we've got all kinds of technologies and designs now that people can actually grow food. But I think what I'm getting at is really about market share. 
you know, I'm talking about uh, what it, to go from scale, to go from growing in your backyard to feed yourself and your family, perhaps, uh, to being able to actually have a long-term sustainable business that uh, is based on the nature, the environment that you, you know, you've inherited, for example, um, and that you can actually build a business generationally to build wealth for you and your family. Uh, that requires, you know, a different way, a different posture <laughs> to be held. And, and that's what we're, we're really working on. We also, uh, the average farmer that we're working with, for example, has is, is got about maybe 40 or 50 acres that they're managing. Um, on the high end, you may have 300 acres. Uh, you're not going to have all that in production, of course. So it's a whole other way of actually looking at the landscape um, and looking at the environment uh, and, and interfacing that way. So, uh, you know, and that sort of is a larger design question for me in the sense of development, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and I, um, I'll answer this from a business perspective. I think that Boston is really fortunate to have a lot of small farms, urban farms, um, and to have a lot of farmer's markets. But if you go to the farmer's markets, there's not a lot of people there. Um, so I think people need more food options that um, we need businesses coordinating with local farms and urban farms, and we need those businesses in low-income neighborhoods. Um, about you know, four or five years ago, Boston subsidized Popeyes coming into Roxbury because wow. they were creating jobs. Um, and so I think that there's a way that planners um, and designers can create incentives <coughs> For our businesses, um, you know, to push out healthy food. For example, as a food truck, we're not allowed to serve soda um, in public spaces owned by the city, right? So, um, what incentives, what subsidies can we give businesses when we're thinking about space um, and who's going to be there to serve healthy food or source from local farms? Just was thinking about uh, time I spent down the Mississippi Delta, probably about two, three years ago, at a Southern Foodways Alliance uh, symposium. This is in um, Greenwood, Mississippi. And I came across uh, a woman who was involved in a collective, and it was a woman's collective that grew sweet potatoes. And traditionally, we grow sweet potatoes. Most of us don't realize they have tops. They have greens. It's like mm -hmm. we have kale, turnip. Sweet potatoes have a green. Well... Somehow she got wind that there was a West African community in Houston that wanted, there was a demand for these greens. So they raised the sweet potato tops in the Mississippi Delta, sold the sweet potatoes where they could there, and then they would, I don't know if it was once a month, I don't know how, that, how often they did it, but they would track the trailer, the tops, to Houston, and they would just quickly sell them all. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, when you talk about land ownership, Let's, let's think about indigenous communities who have always owned the land collectively. Why not think about collective ways of doing a business, owning a land, renting a land to produce a crop and then find a market for it and get it to market? That's, that's another way to think about this as well. Oh, yeah. uh, my first book is called Hog and Hominy, Soul Food from Africa to America. The, the book evolved out of a talk I gave. And the talk was a seminar, a health seminar. And I intervened as the person to look at 
the food element of our health as people of African descent. And I wanted to trace where did the food change? When did it become unhealthy, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very much related to what you're talking about. The last chapter of the book is called Food Rebels. And it looks, like, it looks at people like uh, Elijah Muhammad, Nation of Islam, uh, their interpretation of uh, what healthy eating is. Uh, Dr. Alvina Fulton, which everybody should know, out of mm-hmm. Chicago, Southside. I mean, just amazing. She was the, the uh, what they were called the dietitian to the stars. And just many people would come to her, travel just to get her advice. So there, I guess when you talk about soul food, it comes to which iteration of soul food are we talking about? Because before we left the continent, uh, we know that the majority of people, I guess you could say this across the world, the majority of what they consumed was vegetables, plant food, and meat was a special occasion. You had somebody visiting, you had a new birth, you had a wedding, you had a death. It was a special occasion. Uh, one of the people that I interviewed uh, said that the problem we have with soul food now, it went from special occasion food, you know, frying chicken was Sunday only because it's labor intensive, <laughs> right? But we now have food like that available 24 hours a day. And most of us, uh, we spend a lot of time at one of my uh, interviewees called the, the sit and eat and gobble lane, the fast food lane. And when you're consuming that food every day instead of special occasion, it's not healthy. But you're right. When if it's done right, slow cooked food that uh, you know where it came from. And we all know if you went to a traditional event, a family event, and you brought something out of a box, you weren't going to get let in. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you do it right, it's healthy. And if you know where the food comes from, it's healthy. And kind of what you're saying to Walmart. Folks, we have to realize that Walmart and every other retail people, they understand the value of placing a sign of local produce, locally produced. It's, just, it's a marketing gimmick that we need to take advantage of. So you, if you know where the foods come from, you eat in moderation, you eat on special occasions, you should be fine. Anybody who's going to serve food that tastes nasty should just be out of business. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just look, I have a 10 and a 12-year-old. I do the cooking in the house because I, lo- I love to cook. You know, I, lo- I love that creative process. It's also relaxing for me. But I can tell you, 10 to 12 years old, food don't taste right, forget it. I mean, they're, they're not going to get PC. My, my kids will just look at it. They'll just kind of look at it. You know, I, I can bribe them with a good-looking piece of sweet potato pie. If they eat this, you know, I can do what I want. But there's nothing better than having people take a bite of your food and do nothing but go, mmm. <laughs> see, so, see, some of you knew where I was going even before I said that. Okay, so, but you know, the idea. Look, I tell people for a very long time I was a vegetarian, and it came out of being an athlete more than anything else. It had nothing to do with trying to preserve animals. Sorry, animal lovers. Okay, it had to do with athletic performance. But when I increasingly was asked to do shows and be on shows and interview people. It meant that I was going to have the possibility of somebody who comes from an area that doesn't have a lot of money. They hear this, this production company's coming, and they've spent the whole time making this food. Now, I'm not going to turn my, my, my face up and say, I'm not going to eat this because I'm a vegetarian. So I had to change my diet. But I can tell you that it's so true what you say. If you raise, whether it be plants or animals, the right way, most chefs will tell you, you don't have to mess with it. Mm-hmm. You know. French food, a lot of the food that we talk about is high cuisine now. If you go back and look at the history, it was people who were salvaging this food from the garbage of the wealthy 
slow cooking it, seasoning it to the point where you wouldn't know that it, at one time it was rancid food. Now, mm -hmm. they fooled us into paying a whole lot of money now, but that's how it started. <laughs> you know, and to respond to that comment, uh, this would be a perfect time to acknowledge our two chefs that were involved in this program. Uh, Dee Dee Emmons, who's right from here, who prepared the food with a team of people uh, here in Boston. Uh, but in particular, Bryant Terry. Um, you know, Bryant talks about that a, a great deal. Uh, Bryant is a chef based in Oakland, California, and is a vegan. And his last book was called Afro-Vegan, Farm-Fresh, African-Caribbean, and Southern Flavors, Remixed. <laughs> and, uh, and so when, immediately when we say vegan, you know, we have this impression, oh man, what, you know, is this cardboard? Uh, is it tofu? Is it all tofu? And, and, and Brian, and I, I would uh, give a plug to Brian's book and tell you to check it out and check out the recipes in it as well. And he really emphasizes flavor. Another thing that he talks about, and I heard this from a friend who is a, a Japanese, uh, Japanese American, uh, a sculptor, but also a sushi chef. A, a, a sushi chef. I can't even say it today. Yeah. I'm losing my tongue here. Uh, but uh, Kenji says over and over, and this is one of the things that Brian talks about, is that first you eat with your eyes. Yeah. Hmm. And so it can't be, look nasty either. It has to look good, look appetizing, and then it has to taste good as well. And I would also direct you to look at the program and look at uh, uh, this comment or the statement that Bryant made about today's meal that really talks about the, our, the social economics of eating, talks about the food system a little, uh, and, and really kind of prefaces of what we're going to eat today. That's it for this edition of The Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 